Part One, Chapter Four of The Magnificent Adventure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Cullum. The Magnificent Adventure by Emerson Huff. Chapter Four. President and Secretary. There stood waiting near the gate one of Mr. Jefferson's private servants, Samson, who took the young man's rein, grinning with his usual familiar words of welcome as the secretary dismounted from his horse. Y'all suddenly de warm old Arcturum a little bit dis morning, Mr. Merriweather. Samson patted the neck of the spirited animal, which tossed its head and turned an eye to its late rider. Yes, and see that you rub him well. Mind you, if Mr. Jefferson finds that his whitest handkerchief shows a sweat mark from the horse's hide, he will cut off both your black ears for you, Samson, and very likely your head along with them. You know your master. The secretary smiled kindly at the old black man. Yassa, yassa, grinned Samson, who no more feared Mr. Jefferson than he did the young gentleman with whom he now spoke. I just looking at you coming down that path right now, and I say to myself, Dar come a rider, I sure did, Mr. Merriweather. The young man answered the negro's compliment with one of his rare smiles, then turned with just a flick of his gloves on his breeches' legs and marched up the walk to the door of the mansion. At the step he turned and paused, as he usually did, to take one look out over the unfinished wing of stone, still in process of erection. On beyond in the ragged village he saw a few good mansion houses, many structures devoted to business, many jumbled huts of negroes, and here and there a public building in its early stages. The great system of boulevards and parks and circles of the new American capital was not yet apparent from the place where Mr. Thomas Jefferson's young secretary now stood. But the young man perhaps saw city and nation alike advanced in his vision, for he gazed long and lingeringly before he turned his back at last and entered the door which the old house-servant swung open for him. His hat and crop and gloves he handed to this bowed old darky, Ben, another of Mr. Jefferson's plantation servants, whom he had brought to Washington with him. Then, for such was the simple fashion of the menage, where Merriweather Lewis himself was one of the President's family, he stepped to the door beyond, and knocked lightly, entering as he did so. The hour was early. He himself had not breakfasted, beyond his coffee at the mill, but, early as it was, he knew he would find at his desk the gentleman who now turned to him. "'Good morning, Mr. Jefferson,' said Merriweather Lewis, in the greeting which he always used. "'Good morning, my son,' said the other man, gently, in his invariable address to his secretary. "'And how did Arcturus perform for you this morning?' "'Grandly, sir, he is a fine animal. I have never ridden a better.' I envy you. I wish I could find the time I once had for my horses. He turned a whimsical glance at the piled desk before him. If our new multigraph could write a dozen letters all at once, and on as many different themes, my son, we might perhaps get through. I vow, if I had the money, I would have a dozen secretaries. 
if I could find them. The president rose now and stood, a tall and striking figure of a man, over six feet in height, of clean-cut features, dark hazel eyes, and sandy, almost auburn hair. His long, thin legs were clad in close-fitting knee-breeches of green velveteen, somewhat stained, his high-collared coat rolling above the loosely-tied stock which girded his neck, was dingy brown in colour, and lay in loose folds. He was one of the worst-clad men in Washington at that hour. His waistcoat of red was soiled and far from new, and his woollen stockings were covered with no better footwear than carpet slippers, badly down at the heel. Yet Thomas Jefferson, even clad thus, seemed the great man that he was. Stooped though his shoulders were, his frame was so strong, his eyes so clear and keen, though contemplative, that he did not look his years. Here was a man, all said, who knew him, of whose large soul so many large deeds were demanded, that he had no time for little and inconsequent things. Indeed, scarce knew that they existed. To think, to feel, to create, to achieve, these were his absorbing tasks. And so exigent were the demands on his great intellectual resources, that he seemed never to know the existence of a personal world. He stood careless, slipshod, at the side of a desk, cluttered with a mass of maps, papers, letters in packets, or spread open. There were writing implements here, scientific instruments of all sorts, long sheets of specifications, cancelled drafts, pages of accounts, all the manifold impedimenta of a man in the full swing of business life. It might have been the desk of any mediocre man, yet on that desk lay the future of a people and the history of a world. He stood, just a trifle stooped, smiling quizzically at the young man, yet half lovingly, for to no other being in the world did he ever give the confidence that he accorded Meriwether Lewis. I do not see how I could be president without you, Mern, my son, said he employing the familiar term that Meriwether Lewis had not elsewhere heard used, except by his mother. Look what we must do today. The young secretary turned his own grave eye upon the cluttered desk, but it was not dread of the redoubtable tasks awaiting him that gave his face all the gravity it bore. Mr. Jefferson, he began, but paused, for he could see now, standing before him his friend, the man whom, of all in the world, he loved, and the man who believed in him and loved him. Yes, my son, your burden is grievous hard, and yet, yes, my son? But Meriwether Lewis could not speak further. He stood now, his jaws set hard, looking out of the window. The older man came and gently laid a hand upon his shoulder. Come, come, my son, said he, his own voice low, and of a kindness it could assume at times. You must not, you must not yield to this, I say. Shake off this melancholy which so obsesses you. I know whence it comes. Your father gave it to you, and you are not to blame, but you have more than your father's strength to aid you, and you have me, your friend, who can understand. 
Lewis only turned on him an eye so full of anguish as caused the older man to knit his brow in deep concern. What is it, Mern? he demanded. Tell me. Ah, oh, you cannot tell. I know. Tis the old melancholy and something more, Mern, my boy. Tell me. Ah, yes, it is a woman. The young man did not speak. I have often told all my young friends, said Mr. Jefferson slowly after a time, that they should marry not later than twenty-three. It is wrong to cheat the years of life. And you approach thirty now, my son. Why linger? Listen to me. No young man may work at his best and have a woman's face in his desk to haunt him. That will not do. We all have a handicap enough without that. But still, Merriweather could only look into the face of his superior. I know very well, my son, the president continued. I know it all. Put her out of your heart, my boy. Would you shame yourself and her and me? No, never would I do that, Mr. Jefferson, believe me. But now I must beg of you. Please, sir, let me go soon. Let it be at once. The older man stood looking at him for a time in silence as he went on hurriedly. I must say good-bye to you, best and noblest of men. Indeed, I have said good-bye to everything. As you say, your case is hopeless? Yes, sir. Ah, well, we have both been planning for our western expedition these ten years, my son, so why should we fret if matters conspire to bring it about a trifle earlier than we planned? I asked you when I was a boy to send me, but you could not then. No, but instead I sent yonder maundering Michaud. He, Ledyard, and all the others failed me. They never saw the great vision. There it lies, unknown, tremendous. No man knows what, that new country. I have had to hide from the people of this republic the secret purpose which you and I have had of exploring the vast western country. I have picked you as the one man fitted for that work. I do not make mistakes. You are a born woodsman and traveller. You are ready to my hand as the instrument for this magnificent adventure. I cannot well spare you now, but yes, you must go. They stood there, two men who made our great adventure for us. Vision seers, vision owned, gazing each into the other's eyes. Send me now, Mr. Jefferson, repeated Merriweather Lewis. Send me now. I will mend to usefulness again. I will work for you all my life if need be, and I want my name clear with you. The old man laid a kindly hand upon his shoulder. I must yield you to your destiny, said he. It will be a great one. He turned aside, a hand to his lip as he paced uncertainly. But I still am wondering what our friends are doing yonder in France, said he. That is the question. Livingston, Monroe, and the others, what are they doing with Napoleon Bonaparte? The news from France. But stay, he added. Wait, I had forgotten. Come, we shall see about it. With the sudden enthusiasm of a boy, he caught his young aide by the arm. They passed down the hall out by the rear entrance and across the White House grounds, to the brick stables which then stood at the rear. Mr. Jefferson paid no attention to the sleek animals there, which looked in greeting toward him. Instead, 
he passed in front of the series of stalls and without excuse or explanation hurriedly began to climb the steep ladder which led to the floor above they stood at length in the upper apartment of the stable buildings it was not a mow or feed loft but rather a bird loft devoted to the use of many pigeons all about the eaves were arranged many boxes nesting places apparently although none of the birds entered the long room which seemed free of any occupancy mr jefferson stood for a moment eagerly scanning the rear of the tier of boxes an exclamation broke from him he hurried forward with a sudden gesture to a little flag which stood up like the tilt of a fisherman on the ice at the side of the box to which he pointed done said he he reached up to the box that he had indicated pressed down a little catch opened the back and looked in again an exclamation escaped him he put in a hand gingerly and tenderly imprisoning the bird which he found therein drew it forth his long fingers eagerly lifting its wings examining its legs it could easily be seen that the box was arranged with a door on a tripping latch so that the pigeon on entering would imprison itself it was apparent but mr jefferson was depending upon the natural homing instinct of his carrier pigeons to bring him some message i told them said he to loose a half dozen birds at once see see he unrolled from one leg of the prisoner a little cylinder of paper covered with tinfoil and tied firmly in its place it was the first wireless message ever received at washington none since that time has carried a greater burden it announced a transaction in empires mr jefferson read and spread out the paper that his aide might read general bonaparte signed may second fifteen millions rejoice in no wider phrasing than that came the news of the great louisiana purchase by virtue of which this republic whether by chance by result of greed warring with greed or through the providence of almighty god who shall say gained the great part of that vast and incalculably valuable realm which now reaches from the mississippi to the pacific ocean what wealth that great empire held no man had dreamed nor can any dream to-day for a century later its story is but beginning century on century that story still will be in the making a home for millions of the earth's best a hope for millions of the earth's less fortunate granary of the peoples mint of the nations birthplace and growing ground of the new race of men who could have measured that land then who could measure it to-day and its title passed announced in seven words carried by a bird wandering in the air but bound unerringly to the ark of god's covenant with man the covenant of hope and progress thomas jefferson stretched out his right hand to meet that of meriwether lewis their clasp was strong and firm the eye of each man blazed mr jefferson said meriwether lewis this is your monument and yours was the reply come then 
he turned to the stairs the pigeon still fondled in his arm that bird a white one with slate-blue tips to its wings never needed to labour again for mr jefferson kept it during its life and long after its death come now he said as he began to descend the ladder once more the bird was loosed yesterday late in the afternoon it has done it sixty or seventy-five miles an hour for us counting out time lost in the night the ship which brought this news docked at new york yesterday the post stages carrying it hither cannot arrive before to-morrow this is news the greatest of news that we could have yesterday this morning we were a young and weak republic to-morrow we shall be one of the powers of the world go now you have been held in leash long enough and the time to start has come to-morrow you will go westward to that new country which now is ours neither said anything further until once again they were in the president's little office room but thomas jefferson's eye now was afire i count this the most important enterprise in which this country ever was engaged he exclaimed his hands clenched yonder lies the greater america you lead an army which will make far wider conquest than all our troops won in the revolutionary war the stake is larger than any man may dream i see it you see it in time others also will see tell me my son tell me once more come what may no matter what power shall move you you will be faithful in this great trust if i have your promise then i shall rest assured thomas jefferson more agitated than any man had ever seen him dropped half trembling into his chair his shaggy red mane about his forehead his long fingers shaking i give you my promise mr jefferson said merryweather lewis End of part one, chapter four.